Thank you, Mark and Jessica, for leading us in song, for Tyler for leading us in our observance of the Lord's table, and uh, Mike and Beth Smith couldn't be here today, but our bread each time is courtesy of Mike Smith, who spends time making that for us, and even on a Sunday he couldn't make it. He made sure to make the bread and run it down here, and so we're so appreciative for that. And we're reminded by communion and songs about the substitutionary death of Christ that even in Christ's death, we find life. I was just thinking about that lyric there in the third verse we were just singing where it referenced dead are raised to life. And that wasn't talking about Christ being raised from the dead, though of course that happened. That wasn't talking about our future resurrection, though, of course, that will happen. I was talking about the event that we read about in Matthew, I believe the 27th chapter of Matthew, uh, perhaps the 26th, talking about bodies came out of the tomb as Christ was dying on the cross. His death is just so awesome and so amazing that even in His death there is life. And on a communion Sunday, of course, we, we certainly remember that as we partake together and are imparted life afresh by the Holy Spirit. But please grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is where we'll be today. By God's grace, covering verses 6 to 13. And why don't I open with verses 12 and 13 and then with a prayer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'll read verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Lord, we thank you for this magnificent reminder, this wonderful text, speaking to your faithfulness above all things. And we ask that today as we look into your word, we would see in it what you would have for us today, how it would apply to our lives, how it would change us to make us more like Christ in the days ahead. And Lord, we ask together that though I am a sinner, that I would not get in the way of your texts, but that I would handle it rightly and that your word would be clear to your people here this morning. Grow us all up in gospel love today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you've heard the phrase, of course, uh, those who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. We see that in our culture over and over and over again, don't we? living through a new chapter of old history being brought to new light each day, it seems. Um, but we see that in our text today, starting in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, we are introduced to some examples from the Old Testament, from God's old covenant people, the Israelites. And Tyler introduced us to this section last week, talking about our fathers, those who Moses led through the water, through the wilderness, the ones who were being led ultimately by the Lord. The spiritual rock that followed them was Christ, we read last week. 
And today, our section starts off in verse 6, that these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. Now, what a statement. We're going to find in these verses some first covenant examples for you, a new covenant believer. And let's keep reading verses 6 to 11, that we would not crave evil as they also craved. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but or and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Let me give you an initial purpose statement. We are to learn from the past so that we won't lust for sinful ways of living. We are to learn from the past so that, this is the purpose, we're to learn from the past so that we won't lust for sinful ways of living. And you see that in verse 6. This is pretty plain. These things happened as examples so that we would not crave or lust after evil things as they lusted or as they craved. And we need to dwell on this for a moment, this verse 6 and also verse 11, because we see the phrase, these things happened. These things happened so that. Well, these things happened and were recorded in the documentary of God's nation. When you read through the 39 books of the Old Testament, you read through and see lots of things happening over and over again. You see patterns. You see ebbing and flowing in spirituality. But I want us to think about these things happening as real things. Paul here is not making reference to the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, and saying, these are just nice stories that someone made up and we'll pull them out today as examples. Paul is referencing a real history of a real people. Israel's history is a real history. Many Israelites were redeemed. You read through the pages of the Old Testament and you see them experiencing salvation, having a relationship with God, their maker. They were a real people with a real history. However, God worked in such a way that those Old Testament events that were real events of real people have always been examples waiting to be looked at by His new covenant people. Isn't this interesting? That even though this is a real people with a real history that lived through actual events, that suffered many things, that learned many things, that all along God's sovereign, kind, gracious purpose wasn't just that they would experience Him then and there and have salvation then and there and go through trial then and there, but that all of that would be recorded for you today as an example. Only God could work such a thing together, that He was intentionally caring for them in those moments, yet all the while storing up great examples for us in the year 2021. It's amazing. It's quite amazing. Look at verse 11 with me again and feel the weight of this. These things happened to them as an example. 
and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Now remember, this is all needing to relate back to the topic of food offered to idols. We can really lose that in all of this, can't we? Because when you go back to chapter 8 and you see how did we get to this point in our letter, well, in chapter 8, Paul starts a new topic and he's talking about food that comes from an animal that had been sacrificed to an idol. And all of this is leading up to his conclusion. We're getting back to that topic in just a few verses. And so all that Paul is describing here in our passage today ultimately relates back to his instruction on what to do with food that had been offered to an idol. And what we're going to learn today is that each example that we learn from the Israelites has to do with either selfishness or idolatry. Those are the two big themes in each of the examples. And these two themes, selfishness and idolatry, go hand in hand. You really can never have one without the other, and I think we'll see that in the text today too. But as it comes to, when it comes to this food that Paul's instructing them about, they needed to be thinking on selfishness, prioritizing themselves over other people, and idolatry, engaging in idol worship, perhaps, as they were to eat this food. And so all of these examples tie into that theme, and we'll elaborate more on that as we go through. But first, let's talk about selfishness and look at it in his examples that he offers. Selfishness is not resting in the sovereign care of God. That's a way that you can think about selfishness today that perhaps you haven't thought about it. Selfishness is not resting in the sovereign care of God. And it often looks like complaining, doesn't it? Anytime you hear a complaint, there's usually some sort of selfishness behind it. And Paul equates that in our text today with craving evil. Selfishness is really, at the end of the day, craving what the Lord hates. And it's in the form of complaining and grumbling. Well, what is, what is grumbling anyway? It comes up in our passage. Well, grumbling is just whining about God's order of things in the world. That's all grumbling is. It's whining about the way that God has ordered things in your life. And you know what's really happening when you grumble and complain? You're saying to God, who is the only capital J judge, that you're going to judge Him. You're looking at the way He has sovereignly ordered the world around you, and you're saying, I don't like that. You're making yourself the judge of the judge. Do you think this is a relevant issue for us to face today? Each one of us in our own hearts as we live this life and saying, I don't like that God. That's just grumbling, complaining. It's selfishness. It's whining about God's order of things in the world. And this happened a lot in Israel. Among the Israelites, we see lots of grumbling and complaining in the book of Numbers. And I want us to turn there. So leave your finger here, but let's turn all the way back to Numbers 11 to start looking at some of these examples that Paul gives us in the text. Numbers chapter 11 is the first place we'll go, looking at the first few verses of that chapter. Israel's whining and grumbling and complaining, judging the judge of their lives, whining about God's order of things in the world. We see it so often in their wilderness wanderings. Numbers 11, starting in verse 1. The first verse tells us quite a bit. Now the people, the people of Israel, became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. (laughs) 
And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now that is what we can call swift justice, right? Verse 2, the people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, they learned their lesson, surely. Let's advance just one verse. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. You can just hear that, can't you? What a bunch of whiners! Whining and complaining and grumbling. So you want to go back to Egypt, do you? For the fish. I've heard it said the food alone is worth the trip. And that's where their minds were. Their gods were their bellies. Let's turn to chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. Chapter 16, toward the end, verse 41. Numbers 16, starting with verse 41. Israel never learns their lesson, it seems, as you read these stories. Numbers 16, verse 41. On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. Now, let's pause there and think of that accusation. We are coming off the heels here of Korah's rebellion, and many of you can remember that story. The ground opened up and swallowed many people because of a rebellion against the leaders that God had assigned to Israel. God had given them Moses. God had given them Aaron, and the people didn't like them. They didn't want them to be in charge. They were grumbling about God's order of things in the world. So again, swift justice came upon them. Many people died, and those people didn't learn. Why did those people die? They were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. So what do the people who survived do? The very first thing they do is grumble against Moses and Aaron. Verse 42, And it came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone forth from the Lord. The plague has begun." Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly, for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700 besides those who died on account of Korah. Quick, swift justice in Israel. These are the examples that Paul is bringing up in our text today. Remember these things. 
Why is Paul telling the new covenant people, the church, to remember these things? It's because God still brings judgment on those who test Him. He does. God is still the judge. God is still holy. God still has standards. God still calls us to be holy before Him. And we see in the midst of all of this, in the chapter before, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about being disqualified for the race. Being disqualified from this race that is toward our eternal prize. Paul says that he disciplines his body so that he won't be disqualified. Meaning disqualification, as Paul presents it, is an option. In the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, where we'll be before too long, talking about communion, what we just did today. Paul talks about those who take communion in an unworthy manner. Some of them are sick. Some of them sleep. They're dead. God still brings judgment, doesn't He? In 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle declares that it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. God didn't save you as a new covenant people to then go hands off and say, do whatever you want. Take lightly my salvation. Esteem lightly my grace, my mercy, and my patience, and do whatever you would like. Actually, God saved you that you may walk in the good works He prepared beforehand. God saved you and placed you among a people and called you holy. That's what that word saint means, that word that's applied to you in the here and now. It's not for fancy people with big hats and robes after they die. We don't call people saints then. We call you a saint now if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And that word means a holy one. You are a holy one. And God who is working in you, God who wills these things in you, will bring about His fruit by His faithfulness, by His Spirit. And when you rebel, He is still there. And when you fight, He is still there. And He is still the holy judge, isn't He? So we see in verse 6 in our text today, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Look down at verse 10. Don't grumble. We just looked at two examples. Some of them grumbled and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Yours might say by the destroying angel. There were times even in that first testament when God would send a destroying angel who would come along and destroy the people, take their earthly lives as swift judgment for their grumbling and complaining. There's another manifestation of their selfishness here in verse 9. Not just grumbling, but trying the Lord. Paul writes, Don't let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. We won't turn there, but in Numbers 21, you have this recorded example where the people were testing God. It doesn't say that in that text. That's Paul's interpretation of what was happening. By their sinning, they were testing God. His inspired interpretation, I should add. And the people... Because they were testing God, were given swift justice through snakes. So here's the big story. If we want to take the meta look at this, God saved His people out of Egypt, redeemed them. 
brought them through on dry land. He tells them that over and over and over again in the first five books of the Bible. He reminds them. So what do they do in response? Well, they get whiny and complainy and grumbly. They do all these things and they test the Lord. So then Yahweh, the God of Israel, He sends, it says in the text, fiery serpents that bit the people and they would die. And again, Moses, as the intercessor, who's a type of Christ, one who foreshadowed the ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, Moses stood between the people and God, and the Lord told him, take a serpent and put it on a standard. And so Moses crafted a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and all who looked on that serpent were healed. They would be healed and protected because they looked to the bronze serpent. Now, you may remember that in Jesus' ministry, he said that this was also a type of Christ. That we, being consumed by sin, headed for death, when we look to Christ who is lifted up, when we look to Him, we can be saved, we can be healed, we can be protected. And you might ask yourself, well, I have this propensity to try God just like Israel, to complain, to grumble. How can I escape such a propensity? Well, look to Christ. Gaze upon His ultimate example of provision. Complaining is to say, you haven't provided what I wanted. Well, look to Jesus because that's the ultimate example of His provision, isn't it? Jesus is the ultimate example of God providing for you what you most desperately needed. And when you look to Him, you won't be disappointed, but you'll be ultimately satisfied when you appeal to Him with a heart of faith. Selfishness is manifested in grumbling. It's trying the Lord. Idolatry is also listed here. Remember the two themes I gave you, selfishness and idolatry. Let's look at verse 7. He implores them, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And for this, we'll need to turn to Exodus 32. Let's look at that together. The second book of the Bible, toward the end of it, Exodus chapter 32, the first few verses of that chapter. To see this example of idolatry. And what is idolatry? Well, idolatry is the worship of a created thing in the place of the Creator. Idolatry is worshiping creatures rather than the one creator. And you should know at this point in your life that each of us rather constantly is seeking another God. Each one of us is seeking another God who will not hold us accountable. Most often it's ourselves because we go pretty easy on ourselves, don't we? (laughs) We're very strict gods with other people, but we are very liberal gods with ourselves. We make all kinds of justifications for our sins and shortcomings and perversions. We're always seeking a God who doesn't hold us accountable so we can focus on ourselves. If we see just an amazing thing here in chapter 32 of Exodus, Moses was up on the mountain. He was up there with God. And we get a look at what the people were doing, starting in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, what does that mean, delayed? Moses didn't give them a time. God didn't give them a time. We're already picking up on something here, aren't we? When the people reckoned that Moses was taking too long, that's another way of reading that. 
The people assembled about around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, or yeah, they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. What a perversion. Verse five. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. The verse that's quoted in 1 Corinthians 10. The people were seeking another God. And with a man-made God comes man-made worship. With a man-defined God comes man-defined worship. There are many things we can take from this example in Israel's history. One of the many things is our flippant or casual or pragmatic approaches to worship. It's really just idolatry. When we apply our standards on what we believe worship should look like or how things should go, it's idolatry. When we think that God is taking too long or that things aren't the way we think they should be, and we then start doing our own thing, deviating from what God has said, it's idolatry. It says that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They were likely eating and drinking things they were not supposed to be eating and drinking. They had strict rules on that. It's also likely that the word there for play had sexual overtones. It wasn't that they were playing horseshoes or something like that, but they were doing very inappropriate things. And when you consider that, it makes even more sense why Paul would quote that in his letter to the Corinthians, because many of the Corinthians were still engaged in these cultural practices that took them outside the bounds of what God had commissioned them to do. So much idolatry is often tied up with sexual immorality. Because once you get God, the one true God who issues you moral commands, once you get Him out of the way, the path is clear toward sinful sexual expression, isn't it? Once He is removed and replaced with a God of your own making, well, you may do whatever it is that you want to do. So that's why Paul writes in our passage today, back in 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 8. Nor let us act immorally. This is sexual immorality. As some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. When the 23,000 died, this was back in Numbers 25, it says that the sons of Israel, they played the harlot with Moab. And they went off and they joined with their daughters. And it wasn't just that they got married and had children, etc., etc. But it says at the beginning of that chapter that their hearts were enticed to worship those false gods. So often, sexual immorality and idolatry are just found together. And Paul was 
emphasizing this in our letter back in chapter 6. He explained to them, don't keep going to those temple prostitutes. Your body is the Lord's. You've been purchased. Should you take what is God's? Jesus, who is one spirit with you, should you go and join yourself to a prostitute and be one spirit with her? The answer, of course, is no. Heaven forbid. No. Idolatry and immorality should not be found among God's people. But listen to this. Idolatry and sexual immorality are always knocking at the door. It's a constant threat. It's a constant threat to the church, to the health of your soul. We have to stand guard. We have to be alert. These verses have not lost their relevance in 2,000 years. You can make the case that these verses are more relevant. Constantly in our homes, around our homes, in our neighborhood, in our culture, idolatry and immorality is rampant. We have to be on guard because we are the ones upon whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 11 again. The end of the ages. We're living in this age of the church before there's a great tribulation on the whole earth, before there's a messianic kingdom on the earth. This is the end of the ages. They've come upon us. We must be alert. We must have our eyes open. Because these looming threats are there. Idolatry, immorality, selfishness. We must keep a close eye on ourselves, individually and corporately, as the body of Christ. We have to keep a close eye. So you can understand why Paul, after listing all these examples, he starts verse 12 with, therefore. (laughs) He commissions all, all these commands, don't do this as they did, don't do that as they did. Therefore, verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed. Therefore, take heed that he does not fall. The good news in all of this is that, yes, we have these examples of failure over and over and over again in the first covenant, but you don't have to follow. That's good news. You don't have to follow those examples. And the first thing we must do in seeking to live a life contrary to Israel is to take heed by understanding not only those who came before us, but by understanding ourselves. We must assess ourselves accurately, humbly, logically. Much of the falling that we see, this is referring back to verse 12, take heed lest he falls. Much of the falling that we see in our day and age among people who perhaps called themselves Christians at one point, much of that falling comes from an empty and foolish self-confidence. People who thought far too highly of themselves, who walked around as though nothing could corrupt them, who thought they had their lives perfectly in order. We have to assess ourselves accurately. Paul here is issuing another warning to us. The warning is this. It's entirely possible that you could fall. It's entirely possible that you may fall. 
That's a warning for us. If you don't think that you could fall, that is just pride. It's just utter pride. John MacArthur has said this, When we feel most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest, our doctrine the soundest, and our morals the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent on the Lord. When we feel most secure in ourselves, we should be most on our guard. When you think you've got it all together, doctrinally, morally, practically, that should be a red flag. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. <laughs> you should know this one. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. You've experienced this, haven't you? There have been times in your life where you think you've got it. We have a couple of toddlers, emphasis on toddle, happening in our home right now. And sometimes they'll, now that we have our littlest one walking, that just happened yesterday, they'll start going across a room and they think they've got it and they can just run. Well, especially that two-year-old, no, he can't. <laughs> no, that is not the case. But he thinks he can. And that thinking that he can comes right before his fall. And so spiritually, if we think we have it all together and that we are morally indestructible, that's the first step down. If we take a casual approach to the Christian life and we're not thoughtful and intentional and deliberate, well, that's the first step down. We have on our back patio here as you walk out the kitchen a step that can become invisible on that patio. It's the same color and texture as the rest of the patio. And recently, Roy's been kind enough to repaint that red strip that goes across. Because without that red strip, you just start walking. I've done it. Many of you have done it. You just start walking. And next thing you know, you're looking like you're doing a dance move or something because you just fell off a step. And I'm thinking maybe we should have painted on there 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Take heed lest you fall. <laughs> we get so deceived, don't we, by things that are visual, things that we have around us in our lives, but we also get deceived spiritually, thinking that we stand, but we could fall. And Paul's not alone in the New Testament in issuing the warning that you may fall. We have these warnings in Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. You see, there's a possibility of stumbling, but if you practice these things, you will not stumble. And then again in chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Stumbling and falling. You cannot lose your salvation, but there are some among us who may apostatize. Apostasy exists. You may fall into a pattern of sinful behavior. These are great mysteries and dangers for us in the church. This word for fall that we find in our text today in verse 12, it's the same word that's found back in verse 8 
when Paul says that 23,000 fell in one day, they dropped. And it's the same idea, but Paul now is using the verb spiritually. Your spiritual life may just drop dead like those men did. You may fall into rebellion and consequently fall into judgment, the judgment of God that still exists among His new covenant people. It wasn't just for the old covenant, but also for the new. And when we see this happen around us, and even when we experience it ourselves, we so often don't know the state of the soul experiencing this falling. Was this person ever truly saved? Am I saved? We don't know. We're not omniscient. We can't look into their heart and say yes or no with the certainty that God has. We just know that when someone falls, when someone stumbles, it is a sad state, isn't it? When you've experienced it in your life, it is a sad state. But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us with verse 12. He follows up verse 12 with one of the greatest statements on sanctification that we have in the Bible, where he says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Let me give you a succinct, or succinct rather, primer on temptations. You don't have to turn there, but in James chapter 1, we learn about temptations also. So think of the verse you just read, and now think of this, James chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So take those truths that God doesn't tempt us, that temptations come from within and give birth to sin, and couple that reality with what we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, that God does not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, and God always provides a way of escape. And you've just got a really profound theology of what temptation is, don't you? God doesn't tempt you, but He protects you. God cannot be tempted by anyone, but He does provide a way of escape for you when you're being tempted. That is incredible. What an amazing reality of God's goodness and faithfulness. Paul tells these Corinthians, look again at verse 13, that nothing had overtaken them outside of their own willing. Paul is saying to them, you're not helpless here. It's not that something outside of you, outside of your own control, has come in and overtaken you, and you're just helpless lying there like a dead fish. But Paul is saying, none of those things have actually happened. In fact, you're not helpless. You have infinite help. The exact opposite of what some people might be tempted to think, that they're helpless by being overtaken in, in this temptation. No, you haven't been overtaken. You've been given infinite help from an infinite God. 
And he says that their temptation is actually that which is common to man. The various temptations they were dealing with were not unique to them. Their temptations were not unique to them. Now look at me, all eyes up here. So your temptation is not unique to you either. Nothing that you're dealing with in the realm of temptations is unique to you. Now you might say, well, you don't know this. You don't know that I'm going through this with that and all these details. I know, but I'm telling you what the Word of God says. There is nothing that you're going through that is unique to you. It is common to man. Behind all the details is a common temptation that we all deal with, that we all face, and you're not overtaken by this. You're not a victim, a helpless victim here. You're a human being living in a fallen world, and by God's grace, if you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the counsel of God's people, you have the Word of God, and you have infinite help from your Maker. There is nothing that you are dealing with that is uniquely difficult for you. Now, are there issues that are unique to you? With all those details, yes. And should you get counsel on those details? Yes, you should. But at the heart of all of it is the same thing that we are all dealing with. And no one is forcing you to drown in a sea of sin. If you're a believer, God is faithful to you and providing a way of escape with each and every manifestation of those temptations. He is faithful, and that's what makes all the difference. You see this in the middle of verse 13. Your temptation has not overtaken you. Your temptation is not uncommon or unique. He switches and looks to God and says, God is faithful. That is what will ground you through all of this. That is what will carry you through each one of these temptations. Not that you're strong because you're not. Not because you're wise because you're not. Not because you are especially fit for the task. You're not. But God is faithful. But God is faithful. He is strong and He is wise and He is fit. And He's in control of all of these things. And He will not allow you to be overtaken. He will protect you. And He will also provide an exit, a way of escape. This is what makes that model prayer make sense. Remember when Jesus taught us to pray? And part of that prayer said, lead us not into temptation. How can we pray that prayer? It's because that's what God does. He protects us from these things. We're calling on God to do what only God can do. The things that He does to protect His people. It's His power, not our power. It's His power. And He provides that way of escape. He does this by revealing to us what needs to be corrected in our lives. Through His Word, He will correct your false thoughts, your pre-understandings, your suppositions about life. He'll correct you if you submit to His Word. He puts you in a family with His people and they will give you specific counsel with your particular situation. And there's a collective wisdom there by God's power. 
He gives you His Spirit. So after hearing a sermon like this, even though I'm not telling you what this means for your interaction with your neighbor, or what this means for you and your family member, or what this means for you and your job, His Holy Spirit can take these truths and apply them to your life in such a way that your life changes. You're living a life that's more set apart for God. You're being conformed to the image of Christ because you have this infinite help from an infinite God. He always provides a way of escape. And this happens both on micro levels and macro levels. This happens later today when you're tempted to get angry and yell at one of your kids. This happens later today whenever you're struggling with hating your job and you don't want to get up tomorrow and you're not counting it as provision from God. This happens when you're just a millimeter away from complaining about this or that or the other thing. God is providing a way of escape the whole way through. His Spirit is in you, renewing your mind. His Word is soaking into your soul. He's faithful. You're not powerful. He is, and He's faithful. And it also happens corporately. When a church is tempted to get pragmatic, to make a golden calf, you know there are still churches that make golden calves? They're not golden and they don't look like calves, but they got a lot of them. This particular program or this particular set of decorations or whatever it may be, this, this ministry that I've been doing for so long, no one can take it away from me. That's not your God. God can work among us corporately to keep us from going into idolatry. Because there is a constant temptation to seek after other gods, isn't there? And what happens as we deal with this is that our faith is strengthened as we go through these trials with the faithful God, carried by the faithful God. We come out of it with a strengthened faith. This is how you grow in the Christian life. Not by avoiding temptations, but by going through the temptation. There's no other way to live this life. There's no belt route to heaven. You go through the trials, but you go through them with God, with the faithful, powerful God. Well, let me finish by answering a couple of questions. First, what about those who don't go through them, who don't endure, but are overtaken by them? Those who collapse, who abandon, who start chasing after selfishness and idolatry. Well, let's start by first defining endurance, because we are talking about enduring this life, enduring the race, to use Paul's illustration. Endurance is not perfection. Okay? You know this, right? <laughs> endurance is not perfection. It's an important reminder. You won't live this life perfectly. Well, what is endurance then if it's not living this life perfectly? Well, endurance is a continual running of the race. It's a continual running. Even though it's not perfect, you're running the race that God has given you. You've been placed in a race, and you run toward your prize, always keeping your eyes fixed on your Savior. Not abandoning your Savior, but running toward your Savior, running the race. Now, there are those who don't endure. Maybe they seem to endure for a season. Maybe they were running the race with us for a few hundred meters, and we thought, they were just like us religiously. Well, some of them fall away. And I said earlier, you can't lose your salvation, but you may apostatize. And 
That's what I'm talking about here. If someone apostatizes, meaning that person abandons the race, that person leaves the faith, well, that person was running the race fraudulently. That person was running the race in a disqualified state. That person was never born again. That person was never regenerate. That person learned the lingo, learned the culture, was with us for a while, and perhaps even had moments of sincerity. But that person never truly knew the Lord. That person was never Christ's. Because Christ doesn't lose any that He's given. John chapter 6, all who the Father gives me, He's going to save. That's what Jesus said. Those who quit the race were never competing honestly. They're frauds, apostates. And we must all heed the New Testament warnings, especially the ones we're reading through now. There are several in this section. And I presented to you some commentary by Thomas Schreiner a couple of weeks ago that I thought was very important. These warnings aren't saying, yeah, you might have salvation one day and not the next. But what these warnings are doing are strengthening the believer. He said, I love the way he phrased it, your faith as a believer, as you read the warning passages, your faith isn't dampened, but your faith is deepened. Your love for Christ grows through these things as you heed the holiness of God and the warnings that are set before us. And we all do well to pay attention to them. So for those who don't endure, those are those who never knew the Lord to begin with. Second question I want to close with. Well, if that's the case, and you desire to endure, how do you endure? Because that's the million-dollar question, right? Well, maybe we should start saying 10 million. A million doesn't get you very much today. Uh, The $10 million question. How is it that you are to endure if you desire to endure? If you want to run well for your Savior without stumbling, how do you do this? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll finish there. Turn forward past uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. After the book of Philemon, you'll find the book of Hebrews. And I want you to look at chapter 12 with me. I read this to you a couple of weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Last time we stopped at verse 3. This time we're going to go to verse 4. Hebrews 12, 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. (laughs) Now look at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. There's more striving to do, isn't there? So how do we run well for Christ? It starts by looking to Him. As we were listing off 
examples of first covenant failure. We were looking in the book of Numbers, looking in Exodus. Think of all those failures. Jesus is the only first covenant example that we can look to who was perfect through and through. We can look at the life of Jesus who was born under the law. He was still living under the old covenant. The new covenant was initiated by his blood. He was living in the old covenant, and we can look to him as the only perfect example. He did not have one sinful desire. He did not have one sinful motive. Everything he thought and said and did was only perfect always. So we look to him. Who else would we look to but Jesus? And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling us here in verse 2 again. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. So we recognize him as our Savior. And of course, in the gospel, we receive him. We not only recognize him as perfect God who died in in our place for our sins and rose again, but we receive Jesus. We believe, trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And after recognizing and receiving Him, we can rest. We can rest in Christ. We can have an eternal rest that no man can take away. We have received Him, then we can rest in Him because we are secure in Christ. We are not in any danger. We are secure if we have been saved. But our resting isn't just channel surfing, because we're also called to run. We are running a race of rest. This doesn't make much sense, does it? We are to totally rest in Christ as we run. That wasn't much better, was it? It's both and, isn't it? In the Christian life, our souls are at eternal rest. We have absolute security in Jesus. No one can interfere with this. And we are to run the race set before us, it says in Hebrews 12. It's set before us. We are to resist, it says in verse 4. And we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We are to be alert in our worship. You know that everything you do is an act of worship, either to God or to some false god. In every area of life, at all times, we are to be alert. We are to worship Him alone and not ourselves, which is selfishness, or some false god, which is idolatry. Paul's point in the text. We are to worship Him alone. Recognize who Christ is and what He has done. Receive Christ by faith. Rest in Christ and run the race set before you. Turn back to chapter 4 of Hebrews. I'll close with this, starting in verse 9. That first covenant people, Israel, they did not find rest in any land. They did not find an eternal rest where they said, yeah, that's it. We've gotten it all. We're done. They were continually looking for a rest. And in Jesus, we have the ultimate rest. It says in Hebrews 4.9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his 
Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. There's our word again, fall. Through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavenlies, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Find your rest in Jesus. Run this race for Jesus. Run to the throne of grace to talk to Jesus. Run this race well for God's glory and God's honor. Father, we thank you because that's all we can do is thank you and praise you. Jesus has saved us. He is our Lord. He is our God. And in him, we have all things. We are totally satisfied. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for carrying us to the end because it's your power, not ours. Give us grace to help in time of need, we ask. We will deal with so many temptations this week. There will be times to lust, times to gossip, times to be greedy, times to grumble and complain and test you. By your Spirit, work in our hearts in such a way that we would see the way of escape, that we would live lives that honor you, that reflect the gospel, that make much of your name. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.